welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Better? Rookie mistake. Man, I've been doing this 20 years. think I wouldn't do that anymore. I'll be married 18 years tomorrow. How about that, guys? Celebrating 18 years. Yep. Holy buckets. We've reached that point where we've now known each other longer than we didn't, which is, man, whew. I've warmed up. I've already got one sermon under my belt, so you guys should be ready to go. Are you ready to go? Okay. Um, I'm Micah, by the way. Nice to meet you. I'm the lead pastor here at Awaken. That might be hard for you to believe, but it's true. Um, And we are in a series called Lost in Translation. So here's what we do. Uh, Typically, we take the hardest passages that we can find in the Bible or the most obscure or just the weirdest ones, and we try to make sense of them. Uh, For example, we've talked about 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is God-breathed. Like, what does that even mean to say that? Uh, A couple of weeks ago, we talked about Ezekiel 23, um, this was the, uh, uh, we don't have kids community for like our mid-range kids, so I'm going to omit a couple of things. Um, just, you're going to want to check the podcast out on that one, and, uh, and if you're interested, that is in the Bible. Um, we'll just say donkeys and horses and, um, it's good, it's probably enough, okay. These guys are like, that's good. <laughs> Last week, 1 Peter 3, we talked about the day of the Lord, this idea like that fire will come down on the earth and you know, consume and burn everything, or maybe not. Uh, that was lovely. Our good friend Ben came back. So this week, what I want to do is we're going to look at one of the most controversial passages in the Bible. It's been written about by all kinds of different people from all kinds of different fields. So like the theologians have wrote about this, the church fathers and mothers have wrote, written about this. Um, psychoanalyst Lacan wrote about this passage. Uh, Kierkegaard, a philosopher, wrote an entire book called Fear and Trembling on this passage. This is the, this is the passage of Abraham and Isaac, the sacrificing of, Ab- of Isaac by his father, Abraham, or the near sacrificing of Isaac, I should say. Um, in, in Judaism, this is called the Akedah, which is, it means the binding of Isaac, or the testing of Isaac, some people know it as. So my sermon title this morning is called, Abram, Sacrifice Your Son. Ah, just kidding. Come on, everybody. That was funny. Genesis 22, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to stand if you can. We'll read from the the word, and then we will jump in here. Starting in verse 1, sometime later, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he'd cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance and said to his servants, Stay here while, uh, with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac and he, he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and he said to his father, Abraham, father, Yes, my son, he replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Also could be translated, walked as one. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. 
But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know you fear God because you have not withheld your son, uh, you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from, from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities, of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Pray with me. God, this morning, we're gathered here, and we, uh, we do so with varying degrees of faith. Uh, we, uh, I pray that by your Spirit you'd be present to us, that we would um, recognize your voice as such, that we would um, see you for who you are. I pray that whatever images, whatever experiences have informed our perception and our picture of you, whatever is inaccurate, God, would be, would be laid bare, would be shown for what it is, and that you and your truth, who you really truly are, would be present to us this morning in very real and tangible ways. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Friends, this is a tricky one to preach because there's a billion different ways you could go with this. There's all kinds of ideas in this passage. Your son, your only son, mentioned a couple of different times, like what's happening there. Um, the idea that they walked as one. Uh, the idea that uh, the place, Hamakom in Hebrew, is often connected to the tabernacle and where God dwells. Go to the place, I will show you. Uh, he arrived at the place, that shows up again. The idea of seeing as God sees. So there's all kinds of different things you could do in this passage. I want to do, I mean, I've tried to sort of narrow this down. There's a ton left on the cutting room floor. I guess that's what I'm trying to say, all right? Um, this one, I've heard, I've heard this story hundreds of times, right? I grew up in the church, and so Abraham and Isaac and, and this story, it shows up in flannel graph, which I just vehemently disagree with. <laughs> I don't think it should have been in flannel. I mean, this is, a, this is an alarming story on a lot of levels. Uh, the, the traditional interpretation of this passage is something like, isn't Abraham amazing? Like, his faith is incredible. I wish I had the kind of faith that Abraham had. You know, and faith is like doing something hard even when you don't know the answer or you don't know the, how it will, will, will come out in the end. And in this case, like, even when you might experience catastrophic loss, but to forge ahead in faith, like, isn't he amazing? And this is what God does for you, right? And, and shouldn't you be glad and worship this God even though uh, he might take it away to prove a point at any point in time? <laughs> That's, you, you can laugh at that, um, the, the traditional interpretation of this passage, it never really sat well with me because, and often kids come, they, they, they come on these questions, you know, second, third graders and adults with like hearts and, uh, and brains, I think should be asking these questions of like, what kind of father is Abraham if he's willing to kill his own son, Right? Like we read this and we're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he doesn't die, so we know the answer and it's not that big of a deal. But it is a big deal. What kind of a father would say, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to kill my son because I heard a voice? 
These are people we would lock up in penitentiaries in 2017. You know what I'm saying? Or at least admit to some kind of psychological evaluation. To come to that David Koresh, the Branch Davidians in Texas, do you remember those guys? He killed all those people because he said God told him to do it. Not far from this story. But we read it and we're just kind of like, oh yeah, no big deal. I think it is a big deal. What kind of a father would be willing to kill their own son because they, feel they heard God told them to do so? Secondly, what kind of God would ask, them to ask a father to kill his son? That, to me, is a serious question that ought to be answered. Uh, and then, who wants to like, worship that God out of love? Maybe, maybe you worship that God because you're scared, or you're completely anxious and like psychotic. But what kind of God is that? To worship that kind of God, like love isn't driving that, right? Fear or anxiety might be, but not love. So I think these are some honest questions, and I've heard them from others, and I think we should, be, we should, we should offer them, or at least put them on the table this morning to say, let's think through this, and, and what's really happening here. So here's what I want to do. I think that there's a couple of themes that are present in this story, lots of them. I want to draw out three of them, which I think are sort of rivers in the text. You see these, they show up, and then you see them again and again, and they, they really play themselves out in very important ways throughout the story of the Bible. And then I want to land with um, maybe a, an alternative reading of Genesis 22, which is my take on, uh, or at least an offering on, how you might read this and answer some of those first two questions. Does that sound good? Okay, here we go. So uh, Genesis 22 is in conversation with some ideas and other passages in Scripture. One of them is, what is faith? What is faith, or what is the nature of faith? If you're going to understand Genesis 22, I suggest that you have to have Genesis 15 in one hand and Genesis 22 in the other. Because these two, are you can read them and, and go, oh, I see the, the crossovers or the links between the two. So let's just look at Genesis 15 real briefly. If you have your Bibles, flip back a couple of pages. We'll start in verse 1 and we'll just read six verses. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. I've got your back, is what that's saying. Your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And it's bad when Eleazar gets the estate. We all know that. Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be your heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him and said, This man will not be your heir. But a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and he said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now, Genesis 22, Genesis 15, right? In order to What's happening in Genesis 15? If you remember the story, Genesis 12, God comes to Abram and says, leave your family, your kin, your household, everything you know, and go to a land I will cause you to see. And there I will bless you by giving you a son, and that son and their sons and many other sons will bless the whole world. This great story of redemption and restoration and renewal will happen by me, God, through you, Abram. Okay, that's Genesis 12. We get to Genesis 15, and we've got five years that have passed. Abraham is probably uh, at least 75 years old at this point. And if you know anything about physiology and men and women and how babies happen, five years at least of trying after God has promised you that you'll have a son, five years of active practicing, trying, right? 
And if you know anyone who's walked through infertility or you yourself has walked through infertility, this is a daunting and terrifying and sometimes very scary and sad road that brings a lot of grief and a lot of questions about you or yourself or God and all of the above. And so this is where we are in Genesis 15. And Abram says, this is not working. And God comes to him in a vision and says, Abram, come on outside. And he says, if you look up at the stars, if you can count them, so shall your offspring be, right? Abram's getting nervous, which he should, but God in this tender moment says, like, I've got your back. And so in his deepest fear, he lays it out like, I'm going to die without a son, not remembered, no, no, nobody to follow me, just forgotten on the annals of history, right? And God says, I've got your back. Look up at the stars if you can count it. And it says in the text, and Abram, Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, if you've been around Awaken long enough, you know, the first time a, bit, a word is used in Hebrew, especially when it's like a big theological idea, it's, it's important because it sets the trajectory often for the word's usage in the rest of the story. This is the first time that the word faith shows up in the Bible. The word in Hebrew is enuma. It's translated faith. So Abram had faith, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So what is faith? What's the nature of faith? In biblical Hebrew, I think you can argue a pretty strong case that faith is less about what you believe and more about the intention of your heart and what you do. Now, we're good Protestants, and so, you know, sola gratia, faith alone, grace alone, scripture alone, right? We, 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 we steer clear of anything that's connected to works often because we're sort of responding to something else that's happened historically. But according to the scriptures, faith is about your intent, the intent of your heart, which is only known by you and the divine, and what you actually do. Said differently, and we see this on full display in Genesis 22 in our passage this morning. Two times the angel of the Lord says, because of what you have done, or at least by implication what you intended to do by sacrificing Isaac, I will surely bless you. And I want to stop for a moment and remind us as 21st century Americans, products of the Enlightenment and rationalism, where reason and thinking, Descartes, right? You remember this guy? I think, therefore I am. This is like, this is the most important thing. I want to stop us for a moment and remind us that according to the scriptures, faith is what you will do, intend to do, or have done in light of what you believe. It is not what you believe or think based on what you've seen or experienced. I'll say that differently. Faith in the scripture finds its way into our actions. And if it doesn't find its way into our actions, it's not faith. That's what the scripture is arguing. Faith is somehow connected. If I believe something, if I say this is true, and it doesn't impact how I live my life, that's not faith. Those are thoughts and musings. That's not faith. Faith is a deep conviction of knowing, sensing, believing, that in turn impacts and influences how I live my life or what I intend to do, have done, or will do. That's faith. So I think it's important for us to not divorce the two, that I can assent mentally to certain ideas about God, and I'm good to go. That's not what scripture is arguing for. Saved, we're, we're, uh, what is it, uh, by grace, we're saved through faith. Um, faith is somehow connected to what we do with our actual lives. I think that's important for us to remember. 
That what I say I believe, what I say I have faith in, actually has to make its way out in my day-to-day life for it to be called faith according to Scripture. That's one of the rivers that's happening in this passage. Another one is what is love. Or excuse me, that's the third one. I'm going to come back to that. Uh, Who is faithful is another river that's in this passage. So if you have Genesis 22 and Genesis 15, jump back to 15 with me. Abram said, or he's asked, look up at the stars, and then he says, like, um, if you can count the stars, that's how many kids you'll have. And Abram says, like, how will this be? God says, get a heifer, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon, because that's what you do when you're wondering about how to have kids. <laughs> get yourself a heifer, a goat, a ram, and a pigeon, and a dove. And you're like, absolutely, that was my next, that's what I was going to do next, actually. So he does that. He gets, gathers those things, and he brings them all back. And then he cuts them in half. So he cuts the goat in half, and he lays it on the ground. And he gets the heifer, which I assume is some sort of cow. He cuts it in half, and he lays it on the ground. He gets the pigeon, smaller knife needed, cuts it in half, lays it on the ground. The dove cuts it in half, lays it on the ground. Because that's what I do when I'm a little frustrated about not being able to have children. (laughs) Why would he do that? And if you know nothing about ancient culture and covenants, this seems bizarre and a little barbaric. In the ancient world, there's no lawyers. There's nobody who's like judging, you know, agreements where you, you, you sign a document and you bring it and you say, we are in this agreement together. And the judge says, yep, I, I rule for you. There's none of that. There is Hammurabi's code, if you've ever heard of that, which is some sort of kind of legal way by which you live your life. But covenants, when two people would enter an agreement with one another, this is how they ratified it. This is how they solidified it. They would basically do this. You and I, we're in covenant together, we're in agreement together, so we will take an animal, cut it in half, lay it on the ground, and then you and I will walk between the animals together through the blood as if to say, if I do not fulfill my end of the covenant, may it be unto me as we have done to these animals. Like, if I'm not good on my word, you can kill me. Well, you can do to me what we've done to these animals. One author of the Old Testament, uh, or an Old Testament author says it this way, to walk between the carcasses is to submit oneself to the fate of the slaughtered animals as a penalty for covenant breaking. In Jeremiah, the prophet even talks about this, that God's saying, like, Israel, you haven't fulfilled this covenant, and, and, and it may be unto you as these animals, right? Uh, so, he's freaking out, what are we going to do? Look up at the stars. If you can count them, that's how it's going to be. How is this going to happen? Go get yourself a dove, an animal, blah, blah, blah. cut some, cut some, cut some. And then he falls asleep. Again, because that's what happens when you, you spend so much time cutting these animals in half. You're just like, man, I'm famished. I'm just... So Abram falls asleep, and the word of the Lord comes to Abram. And here's what happens. God shows him a vision of the future. Like the next 400 years. If you read the passage in Genesis 15... You're going to go into slavery, da-da-da-da, Pharaoh, Egypt, and we're going to bring you out to a land flowing milk and honey, and it's, it's going to happen as I say it's going to happen. It shows them the whole thing. And then a, let's get this right, verse 17, the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces, the animals. Suffice it to say, we can't go into all the details, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch are symbols of God's presence. And what happens when Abram falls asleep is God basically says this, I and I alone am on the hook for the fulfillment of this covenant. I will be faithful to what I have said will happen. And my name, my honor, my, you can do unto me as you've done unto these animals if I am not true to this word that I have given to you. 
Now, what's interesting, God's basically saying, I'll be faithful in this covenant. Me, me alone. I'm putting my name on the line. Two symbols of God's presence passes through. So then in Genesis 22, we get this bizarre little phrase. Maybe you caught it. Verse 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abram, Abraham and from heaven the second time and said, I swear by myself. Did you catch that? I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this, I will bless you and the nations will be blessed and the world will be blessed. Who will be faithful? This is a question that the text is very interested in answering. And I think it's a question that's very appropriate for you and I in 2017. When we bring all kinds of images and ideas and thoughts and experiences about God into a place that may or may not reflect the very true nature of who God is, what God depicts and what's shown in the text and what I would say you can find all throughout history and in the lives of the people around you today are people who will testify to the fact that God has been faithful. That God was faithful, God is faithful, and God will be faithful. Do you guys remember Dumb and Dumber? Perfect segue. They get all the money and they go and they spend it, right? They're buying the boots and the Ferraris and the whole deal. And then at the end, they bring the suitcase of IOUs and they flip it open and they're like, what is this? And he's like, those are IOUs. Those are as good as, you can take those to the bank. Which isn't actually true. They're not good for that money. It's gone. God is faithful and will be faithful. He's good on his word. When God says something will be, it will be. So the text is in a very interesting conversation about the nature of God's character. Is God trustworthy? Can you trust this God or not? And I want to suggest this morning that the text is saying, yes, I swear by myself, God says, I will be true to my word in this covenant, that the world is in process And that process is about redemption and reconciliation and renewal. And I am at the center of it. And it will happen on my watch, God says. Is God trustworthy? Now, the third river in this passage, before I tell you what I really think, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. (laughs) You knew that was coming, right? Oh, come on. Okay, so what is love? Genesis 22, Genesis 15. We're in a deep conversation, and another one of these conversations that we're in is the nature of love. This is the first time love shows up in the whole Bible. Genesis 22 in the story of Abraham and Isaac. Fascinating. In Hebrew, it's ahava. Take your son, your only son, the one whom you love. If the first usage of a word is important in the Bible, especially when it's a big theological word. One could argue there's no bigger word than the word love, and here it shows up for the first time. So the question we all should be asking is, what can we learn about love and what love is, according to the scriptures, by its first usage in this passage? And here we have a father and a son and sacrifice. Two humans and a sacrificial act is somehow connected to the deepest meaning of love. Now, you might be thinking, that's, you, you can twist that. That's an interesting play on it, but somebody's dying in sacrifice, right? And that might not be the loveliest thing I've ever heard. Fascinating. The word for sacrifice in Hebrew, it's korban, and it, the root of that word is kereb, and that literally means to draw near, to come close. So the nature of sacrifice is coming close, drawing near. So you have a father and a son in an action that draws near. What does it mean to say that love in the scriptures is defined 
as two humans and an act that draws near. So this is the first usage. Later on, way at the end of the book in 1 John, we find out that in fact God is love, according to the author, and that the fullest expression of that love, which is God, is greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends, a father and a son and an act that brings near. I mean, if this is nothing but good literature, whoever wrote this is really, really good, right? Like that thread all the way from the beginning all the way to the end, it's like, boom! I think that's pretty fascinating. Either way, I would be remiss at this point if I didn't mention the whole idea of foreshadowing, right, in the scriptures. Like, often we jump right from Abraham and Isaac straight to Jesus. And, oh, if that's Jesus, and Abraham is God, and Isaac is Jesus, and the sacrifice, and salvation. And I'd, sometimes it's played off as kind of trite, but I think I would be an idiot to not mention this because it's there that we have this beautiful picture of a father and a son, and somehow that through that action, um, drawing near is happening. The ultimate expression of the love is a father and a son in an action that brings things near to one another. And I don't think that's all that's going on in this passage, but I would be, we'd be foolish to overlook this face of the gem. The rabbi said that the text is like a 70-faced gem, and you just keep turning it, and it gets, you get a different face, a different look at it. That's at least one of them. Now let me try and land this point and offer maybe an alternative reading of this passage. And I'm going to do this with open hands. I'm going to give this to you with open hands because this is the beginning of the conversation, not the end. Sometimes in church, what the preacher says is the last word. We don't, I don't think that, that's not what we're up to here at Awaken. This is like the first word, and hopefully it continues on in your life groups and stuff. So actually tonight, I'm going to a life group because somebody heard the first word I said three or four weeks ago, and they're like, say more about that. <laughs> Bravo! Well done, everybody! That's, that's what we're trying to do here, right? So I'm going to offer with open hands. You can agree, disagree, wrestle, tell me I'm crazy, that I'm smoking. Well, I, I haven't smoked much. Um, so that's not going to work. But you can tell me I'm crazy either way. And I'm trying, to, I'm trying to wrestle with the two questions I started with. Like, what kind of a father would say yes to killing his own son? What kind of a God would ask a guy to do that, right? I'm trying to work this out. So here's my thought. What if, what if this story is not there in the Bible as an example for us to aspire to? Um but rather as part of a polemic against other ancient cultures and stories about the nature of the world and about the nature of God and about the nature of humans. Said differently, what if Genesis 22 is a polemic and not a story that we should be aspiring to? Right? The traditional interpretation is like, oh my gosh, the faith of Abraham, if I just had the faith of Abraham. And I want to suggest that maybe that's not the point of the story. What's a polemic? A polemic is this, it's a rhetorical idea it's a contentious rhetoric that's intended to support a specific position by aggressive claims to undermine the opposing position, right? So people use polemics in debate class and in law school, right? I'm trying to argue against something. I want to suggest that Genesis 22, and maybe all of Genesis, is actually a polemic written over and against or standing in opposition to other stories of the ancient world that had something to say about God, humans, and the nature of the world that we live in. If that's true, then the whole point of the story shifts. If you study ancient culture, you find two things really quickly. Number one, the idea that 
the gods would ask for the sacrifice of a human, a, a child, was totally commonplace. In the ancient world, the idea that people would offer their sons and their daughters as sacrifices to the gods, completely normal. You also will find that the gods never uh, provide the sacrifice for the humans. We're always on our own to gather whatever it is we can find, a pigeon, a dove, a goat, an animal, something, to offer in sacrifice to the gods in hopes to appease the gods that we might find favor and have rain and so on and so forth, right? This is the dominant world that's, that we're living in when the Bible's written. So you find that child sacrifice is totally normal, and the gods are never the ones providing the sacrifice for the humans, right? Let's take the first one first. When the Israelites come into Canaan, one of the gods that the Canaanites worshipped was Molech. This is a god that, archaeologically, we have proof that this god was one that they offered child sacrifices to all the time. There's pictures of it on the internet. Don't show them to your kids. They're drastic and ghoulish. They're awful, horrible. Molech shows up in the, in the Bible, in the book of uh, Leviticus. Do not give any of your children sacrifice to be sacrificed to Molech, for you must not profane the name of the Lord... I am, or you must not profane the name of your God, <clears throat> excuse me, for I am the Lord. In an ancient book, written at a time when child sacrifice was totally normal, if God were to say to a man, go to this mountain and sacrifice your son, no one would have blinked an eye. That's my point. It would have been totally normal. Abraham wouldn't have blinked an eye. He would have said, all right, I guess that's what we're doing today, because that's what you do when you want to offer like the most the biggest thing to the gods, you would offer your own flesh and blood. So he wouldn't have batted an eye. What's absolutely fascinating is that the Bible, the Old Testament, is totally clear that this is anathema to Yahweh, that this God does not desire anyone to offer their children as sacrifices. Leviticus mentions it, Jeremiah, the prophets... <clears throat> Micah, Amos, Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah 19, Jeremiah 32, the prophets railing against Israel, and they all have this tone. They, the Israelites, have built high places in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, something I did not command, nor did it enter my mind. So the Old Testament is very clear that Yahweh is not interested in the sacrifice of children. And yet we have this story where Abraham is asked to sacrifice his son. What if the point of the story is not that God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son, but that he actually asked him not to, that he stopped him? As if to say, you know how this story's going to end, but stop. I don't desire that. I don't want that. I've made it clear in, in, in the prophets, and they're telling you, that's not what I want. I don't desire blood and sacrifice and death of humans. No, that's not, that's not me. That's not what I'm like. What if the point of this story is not that God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son, but rather that this God did not require this activity to be completed, that this did not please this God. The other part is, God provides the sacrifice. Friends, this would have been totally abnormal that God enters into the process and provides the means by which sacrifice can be given provides the means by which the drawing near can happen. This is a God that is absolutely foreign to these people's minds. This God is different. This God provides the offering. This God secures the offering. This God comes towards you, comes near to the worshiper. This God preserves life, even so much so that 
provides a way by which one sacrifice can be given for all so that no more sacrifices ever needed. We know him as Jesus. This God is different. Even in the midst of, the, of Genesis 22, there's a funny little phrase in there. I don't know if you caught it. Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will return, right? It's as if Abraham even knows something's afoot or the writer is saying, hey, if you have eyes to see, ears to hear, listen up. You may think you know how this story ends. Another child is sacrificed to some capricious God and you may not know how you stand afterward. No, this God is different. We will return. This God can be trusted. This God delights in mercy. This God delights not in judgment, but in mercy. This God is faithful. This God is for you, is around you, is with you, and is doing everything in its power to draw near to you. What if you line up all the stories of the ancient world about God and humans and the world this one would be the one that stands out. This would be a page turner. This would be the shocker. This would be the one, the blockbuster, where everyone's going, that's good news. I don't have to sacrifice my son. That's not the nature of God. What if the point is not that we should all have the faith of Abraham and be willing to kill our sons and daughters if God asked us to, but rather that this God is different, that this God stands over and against all these other stories, all these other pictures, all these other imaginations about what the nature of God is. And this one says, actually, God looks like this. It doesn't ask you to kill your sons and daughters. It provides the sacrifice. It provides the way by which you might draw near to the divine. This God is actually moving towards you, not away from you. This God is for you and wants to bless the world through you in love, not fear, not anxiety, not judgment, not a bloodbath, not violence. No, it's different. And it makes total sense when Jesus shows up and he says, no, 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 turn the other cheek, love your enemies. Violence is not the answer. Power over, it's not the answer. It's not how you do it. All the other ways say to do it that way, but not this way. The kingdom looks like this. Seems to make a little more sense if that's the nature of this story. So even in a story where we have the potential sacrifice of a son by a father, could it be possible that the point of this story is not that God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son, but that he didn't? And what does that tell us about this God? What you would need to know today, and we're back where we started, and I would argue that this God can be trusted. That this God is a God of hope and of love, and is providing a way by which, is not the absent watchmaker who winds up the world and stands back, but is pursuing and wanting and desiring relationship and hope and restoration and renewal and is doing so in our midst and is always saying the door is wide open if you will just, I have come as far as I can and drawn as close as I can come if you will just turn around. So turn around. Fall towards that. Whatever questions you may have, bring them with you and just stumble your way towards that God. And let's do it together. Offer to you for your consideration this morning. What if that's the nature of God? I don't know about you, but I think that's good news. Pray with me if you will. God, would you, in the next few moments...
Would you draw near to us again? Many of us in all kinds of ways have wandered, have broken things, have undone that which you have put together. Would you draw near to us and remind us that your heart is one of hope, it's one of love, in its deepest, it's love. May that love, may that mystery find us today and draw us towards you in and through your son, Jesus. Friends, would you stand for a benediction as we close? Just a moment, we're going to read a prayer that the church has been praying and sending each other with for a long time. But I'll just say this. um, I hope and I pray that as you come to Awaken and we live this out as a community together, that um, the images and the pictures and the, the imaginations that we have about God, that they would continually be refined and that they would continue to, with increasing degree, reflect what we know to be true about God in Jesus. Jesus says, if you want to know the Father, look at me, which is arms open wide, saying, come home, welcome home, come back, turn around, you're forgiven, Uh, you are loved, you belong. That transforms us, that changes us, that makes us into the kinds of people in the world who say to our enemies, I forgive you, I love you, Uh, there's a better way. So my hope and prayer is that as the spirit moves in our community, that we're, we're changed, we're moved, we're, we're transformed, and that with increasing degrees, we look more and more and more like the sacrificial love of Jesus the Christ. And that's what it means to follow. That's what it means to be changed by. So whatever you came here with this morning, I hope and pray that whatever is not true about God just stays here. You can leave it here. We'll pack it up and we'll get rid of it. Uh, <laughs> That's my, that's my job. I take great, great, it'd give me great joy to be able to do that for you. And that you would leave with, when I started this church, my hope and prayer was that people would see Jesus for who Jesus really was. And that that would change us. So, let's pray this prayer. This is called the Glory Be. Uh, the church has been praying it for a long time. This will send us out into the world to hopefully live lives that look like Jesus. Alright? So here we go. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Grace and peace, my friends. Blessings. See you next week. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community or on Twitter at Awaken Community. See you next time.